2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week, we'll look at one of the most notorious and damaging spies in American history, Robert Hansen, who worked for the FBI, but also secretly worked for the Soviet Union and then the Russians for over 20 years. Using the alias Ramon Garcia, Hansen passed on highly classified national security information, including the identity of an agent called the Jewel in the Crown of American Intelligence, Dmitry Polyakov a major general in Soviet military intelligence, which led to his torture and execution. He was paid in dollars and diamonds, but Hansen's diamonds were not forever. His sentence at the Florence Supermax Penitentiary in Colorado, though, most certainly will be. To talk about her new book on Hansen, a spy in plain sight, I sat down with Liz Wheel, who is a former federal prosecutor a legal analyst and reporter for major news outlets, including 15 years at Fox News, and a best-selling author of 20 books and counting. She is also the daughter of an FBI agent. In this episode, we discuss the many contradictions of Robert Hansen, the sworn FBI agent who betrayed his oath, country and colleagues for cash, the devout Catholic who asked his best friend to watch him and his wife have sex on a hidden TV system she was unaware of, the effect the Hansen case had on the relationship between the FBI and the CIA, and the damage Hansen did to American intelligence and to his wife and family. Well, thanks for joining me to speak about your book, but I think to start off, congratulations, it just came out yesterday, right?
0: Yes, just yesterday. Thank you so much for having me on here. I've been so excited about this interview.
2: How does it feel to have the book out? It's not a new feeling for you, is it? you have I believe this is the 19th? 20th. The 20th book. 20th. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, wow. And I, I was just thinking, looking at some of your previous publications, I think it would be really fascinating to have some kind of book that compared the the lives of Charles Manson, uh, the Unabomber, and Robert Hansen. They're three very different and complicated figures psychologically, personally, and in a whole variety of other ways.
0: That's right. They are. And I, I did a book on the Unabomber as well. And it's just ironic that the Unabomber and Robert Hansen are in the same facility, the same Florence Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, and they're both under 23 hours a day of solitary confinement. And I wonder what they do in that last hour, whether they cohort and talk to each other. That would be a fascinating conversation between the Unabomber and Manson no longer with us. But M- Manson and Hanson, I mean, such weird characters and such interesting psychologically psychological profiles.
2: Well, let's uh, start digging into... Robert Hansen. And I'm so pleased that we're speaking because we've got a suit of Hansen's at the Spy Museum. We have the handcuffs that were used to arrest him. We've got a bunch of artifacts. He's in our exhibits. And by almost any definition, he is a classical spy, an intelligence professional for the United States, but a spy for the the Soviet Union and then uh, Russia. So For listeners that haven't been to the museum or don't know who he is, just give us a brief uh, overview of who Robert Hansen was and, and why he matters.
0: He had a relatively benign upbringing. He was raised in Chicago primarily, and his father was a police officer. The father treated him, I would say rather, we would say child abuse, I mean, rather brutally sometimes. But other than that, he had an unremarkable childhood. He loved James Bond, you know, anything James Bond he loved, according to his friend Jack Halshauer, who I interviewed. And he grew up to be an accountant and then get into the FBI because in those days you needed to be a lawyer or an accountant to get in. And that was sort of the pinnacle of what anyone would have wanted for him, his father included. And he gets into the FBI. He's married now to Bonnie Hansen they are devout Catholics on the outside, Opus Dei even, going to mass every day. He gets into the FBI. He's in the anti-espionage unit, goes into the Russian department. And within a year, Andrew, is joining the FBI. He approaches the Russians, not the other way around. They don't, you know, come after him. He approaches them with this letter and saying, I've got this information. He doesn't say, I'm Robert Hansen of the FBI, But he says, I have this information. That information was about a Russian asset, somebody that we had flipped that was working for us from Russia. And he got that person killed. I mean, in a brutal way, in a a brutal way, and a videotape was taken of the execution of this guy. That was just the start. And so for 20 years, Andrew, 20 years, he was still in the FBI and still spying for the Russians, revealing some of our top uh, national security secrets and getting other of our Russian assets killed. So for 20 years, it took until the FBI looked inward and realized that Robert Hansen was indeed their mole.
2: And tell us a little bit more about some of the high profile people that he got killed or betrayed. Uh, I know that uh, Polyakov uh, was one of them. So right. maybe just discuss a couple of the main things that he'd done that our listeners can maybe hang their hat on.
0: Sure, I mean, Polyakov was the first one, and this is in my first chapter. I outline his death, his execution at the hands of the Russians. But he wasn't the last. I mean, there were other Russian assets, four to five at least that we can count, where he got, gave the information to the Russians, and the Russians don't do what we do, which is you know have a trial and decide whether you know what to do with them. They execute them. So what was happening as it was going along is we realized in our Counter espionage unit that we didn't have any Russian assets, and that's critical because you need people on the ground there who are spying for us. I mean, we rely on that information as opposed to politicians and political channels, diplomatic channels. We rely on those spies to give us information. So is it was the the, the damage was done in the death toll of our Russian assets directly on the information that Hanson gave them. And the FBI tried to put a dollar value on the national secrets that were sold. And back in the day, remember Hanson was arrested in 2001 back in the day, they estimated it to be about $10 billion with B, but I'm not sure you ever really can estimate or put it in a dollar amount. The national secrets that were sold, including nuclear plans and, and where our president and vice president would be during nuclear operations. So Really, really important, top-secret stuff. I can't emphasize that enough, that he divulged to the Russians.
2: And it seems to me that there's also uh, something that probably hasn't been quantified and is very difficult to do so, the institutional damage, the effect on the FBI, who I know you have a long association with. Even the relationship between the FBI and the CIA, that was a blind spot in the Hansen case. And I guess some people you know, could say that this is part of the the background context when we're coming up to nine eleven where you have the FBI and the CIA not really communicating properly and so forth. So there's all kinds of other ways that are not quantifiable that you can assess the damage that Robert Hansen done right?
0: Absolutely. And you're right, this is personal to me in some ways because my dad was an FBI agent and worked during that some of the Hansen time. And I remember growing up just hearing what a you know, black mark he was against the FBI. And you know I worked with FBI agents when I was a federal prosecutor. And the stories about Hanson just still reverberated through the FBI and cast such a black mark against them. And it's so sad, Andrew, because my dad and, and all the agents I worked with, really good people that are doing God's work, really, trying to keep us safe. And out there every day, risking their lives, and and to have this black mark was just really difficult for the FBI, and it it showed all of the lack of security. I mean, Hanson was never polygraphed in twenty years. They never did a additional background check on him or financial check on him in twenty years. I mean, I was a federal prosecutor in my fifth year. They did a, a new background check on me because people. People's lives can change, right? You can start when you're not susceptible to blackmail and five years later you might be. But they never did that. They never checked him. They never checked him. And that's part of the incredible story here.
2: Do you think they never checked him because there was always this sense that the FBI... Yeah, and I'm sure this, you know, I know this is a joke in other institutions and stuff, they're the kind of squeaky clean, the suits, the G-men, they're known as a, a, a bastion of moral probity and uprightness, you know, and this is this is part of the reason why it blindsided the FBI so much because it's like it couldn't be one of our people, you know, this is, this is not the FBI. So I just wondered if you thought there was a connection between that sense of themselves as an institution and their ability to look at what's going on internally amongst their own staff.
0: That's right. That they, they just wouldn't look internally. They fingered in a CIA agent, Brian Kelly, at one point, because the, the investigation was run by the FBI. And by the way, all the while, Hansen was checking on the investigation. He was He was the computer guy there at the FBI. So he was monitoring what the FBI agents were doing. And when they fingered Brian Kelly, the CIA agent, I mean, I, he must have done like a little happy dance. <laughs> but it was because they didn't want to look internally. Once you're in that federal family, I mean, the good part about it is you're trusted, right? You have to be. You're going out there, and your your colleagues. You got to trust your colleagues. The bad part of it is you're trusted <laughs> because trust but verify to coin that phrase. You need to be checking on these people to make sure that they are always trustworthy. And that didn't happen with Hanson, egregiously so.
2: And do you think that with Robert Hanson, do you think that part of it was outside? He did seem like in the opening chapter of your book, which I really enjoyed, you outline uh, the FBI director going to the school where Hansen's kids also go. Hansen and the FBI director are both in opposite uh, day, and on the outside, both of them seem to be cut from the same cloth, but one of them's the real deal, squeaky clean, and the other one's really psychologically compromised in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. And then
0: that opening chapter with Louis Free addressing... The graduating class, because both Hansen and he had this, the kids in the same parochial uh, Catholic school. It just outlines for you the compartmentalization that Hansen did, right? Because to the outside world, he was this devout Catholic, five children, including one that graduated with Louis Free, the director of the FBI, hated the commies, as he called them, called them godless people, and all of this, right? while he was betraying our country so horribly. I mean, talk about dual personalities, talk about compartmentalization. Exhibit A would be Robert Hansen because he did it so well for so long.
2: I want to go on to discuss the narrative arc of his time as a a spy for the Soviets and for the Russians. But before we get there, one of the things that we explore at the museum as well as the motivations and, you know, in one of our exhibits we have the money ideology ego and there's other ones of course like love and adrenaline and uh, so forth if you were to pin it down to a couple of things what would you say it was like for me i would say it was it was basically about ego and the money came after that. Whereas for someone like Ames, it was about the money and the other stuff came after that. So I just wondered if you had, you've done a really great job of digging into all of this and speaking to all of these people. So what's your take on Robert Hanson? Why did he do what he did?
0: It's complicated because you're right. It's not just money. I mean, he need the money. He had these five kids in parochial school He moved out to Westchester and to Scarsdale, which is an expensive suburb in New York. Really, you can't afford that on an FBI salary. So they needed the money. They were always tight on money. But you're right. It was much more than that. It was partially the glamour, the James Bond stuff, because Jack Hoshauer, his best friend, told me that he loved James Bond, anything James Bond, you know, more like Dr. Evil, but he fashioned himself sort of a James Bond character.
2: (laughs) And he had a welfare PPK, right?
0: Yes, he did. He did. It's crazy. And it was cheating it off as a kid. But it, it was even more than that. It was his feeling like he had to be the smartest guy in the room, the smartest person around. And he didn't feel that he got his appreciation from his colleagues at the FBI, many of whom he thought were, not, well, all of whom he thought were not as smart as he, and some of them absolute dollars. He had to be smarter. He had to show him. He didn't feel appreciated by his employer. And the Russians on the other side were loving and welcoming and familial with him. And he, he gobbled all that up. I mean, the Russians played him. So, and then there was one other factor that I thought was fascinating. When I spoke with Dr. Charney, his psychiatrist, who interviewed him multiple times over months and months and months in the prison, Charney said, That Hansen had this warped, it's warped to try to explain this, feeling that by giving the Russians our secrets and showing us our weaknesses, therefore, we would shore up those weaknesses, we would fix them, and therefore in the long run would we become a better country. That is absolutely warped thinking, but you have to, when you try to get into the mind of someone like this, you have to think, you know, what is it that motivates them? And I think that was a big part of it. The motivations that I've just outlined, you know, were peculiar to Hanson, but they're not, they're universal, right? The need for money, the need for acceptance, the need for love even, right? And appreciation from your colleagues. Hanson wasn't getting any of that. And, but the scary thing is that when I outlined those generic motivations, they're applicable to a lot of people. There are a lot of people out there in high positions who aren't happy with their colleagues, underappreciated and need money. Right. And, and, and want the glamour. So that's really frightening to me that, you know, it's not like I can say what Hanson, what Hanson's motivations were so unusual. They aren't. I mean, they're universal. They could be applied to lots of people that we probably know right now. <laughs>
2: And I guess in, it's in various degrees and there's various combinations of those ingredients, right? And with Hanson, there was a particular combination of ingredients. And I mean, it's also interesting to me as someone that used to live in New York and known how expensive it was when I lived there, it's interesting that he first approaches the Russians when he gets transferred to New York.
0: That's right. I mean, he goes to Scarsdale, which is very expensive. Suburban Westchester. Bonnie's not working. His wife, He's not, she's not working outside the home. Five kids that are going to parochial school, and you know it's expensive. And the Russians paid in cash, so Bonnie bought all the groceries in cash, and you know everything was a, it was a cash hassle. But again, a lot of people in those positions, the FBI agents aren't paid enough, and it's just astounding to me to think that these motivations are interesting and, and, and applicable to Hansen, but
2: they can apply to a lot of people as well. And it's interesting as well, just thinking about it in terms of the Cold War, if you were to look at someone's career and say, where is the worst places that they could bounce between to do damage to US national security? You would probably say New York and DC, which is where Hansen <laughs> spent almost all of his career, right?
0: That's right. And, and at the top level of our counterespionage unit. So he knew about all our Russian assets. He knew who they were. I mean, he was one of the very top guys. We're not talking about just a line a line agent. He was operational. He was there. And he was very well-versed in computers and IT. He liked that stuff. FBI agents, by in general, aren't that interested in computers. They're not that interested in all that stuff. They want to make arrests, knock down doors, what we know them for. But... Hansen loved that, um, the computers, and that, of course, gave them access to all our top information, top secret information.
2: And I think it's interesting in the book, the impression that I get is that Hansen, of course, is bright enough. You don't just get into the FBI if you don't have something about you, but he's not the smartest person in the room, but by being the kind of tech person when other people aren't, then he can be the smartest person in this little area, which makes him feel like he really is the smartest person in the room. Exactly. Would you agree with that?
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. He needed that. You know, it may have gone back to, I'm not a psychologist, but it may have gone back to his father being so rough on him and telling me stupid, is never going to amount to anything, wouldn't let him make sure he didn't pass his driver's license. I mean, that kind of thing. I'm sure that hurts your psyche, and you need that constant approval once you grow up. And there, he loved being in the FBI. He loved the cachet of it, but he looked around and said, "I'm smarter than all these guys," and yet he was not appreciated. He was he was not very liked in the FBI. He always wore black. They called him the mortician. He had a very dour expression on his face. And, you know, he just, he didn't want to join in an activity. So he wasn't really very liked. He wasn't appreciated.
2: In the book, some of the various people that you speak to, they, one of them calls him the most loathsome person in the <laughs> FBI and the the pro- probably the least liked person in the Bureau. And someone else describes him as sometimes he was there, but he wasn't really there. His body right. was on FM, but his mind was on AM or something like that. <laughs> there was just some kind of disconnect. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Most people didn't like him, but you, you saw in the book too that there were a few that did like him, that did pre- appreciate his intellect. And Jack Househower, his his best friend, says he's still his best friend. I mean, to this day, even though Hansen tried to portray uh, betray him, tried to get enlist him potentially to be a spy.
2: I guess this is speculative, but how do you account for the? the kind of almost flabbergasting loyalty that is given to him still by a very small handful of people so I believe he's never been divorced he's still married to Bonnie <laughs> despite all of the stuff that came out and then Jack Horshower, he's still his best friend What, like why would you be why would you continue that relationship? Like other other spies in the past, their, their their wives and their friends have all walked sideways or like, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> Why have they stayed loyal to him and in some respect or another?
0: You know, Bonnie, well, she's a devout Catholic, so maybe she doesn't believe in divorce. And she's gone to visit him there. And she's also getting his pension because one of the agreements that the FBI made in not executing him and giving him the death penalty or not, not giving him the death penalty, giving him life without possibility of parole, they debriefed Bonnie. And they also gave her his pension. So it could be a combination of religious beliefs and money for her, for Jack. It's hard to tell. It's just a loyalty that's there. I mean, they've known each other since they were little kids went through a lot. And I guess he sees, Whatever good there is to see in Hanson. But I will also tell you that he went to the sentencing in DC, Jack O'Shar did. And Hanson didn't really even acknowledge him. So I don't know if it's a two way friendship anymore. But Jack didn't do anything to turn him in or anything like that. He He had no involvement in it. I mean, Jack was used and abused in this friendship.
2: We'll be right back after this. let's establish a narrative arc for Hansen's career as a spy. So I know he's in New York, D.C., New York, D.C., but another thing that fascinates me is he starts and stops and starts and stops and I believe it's it's three times he does that. So yeah, why does he keep flicking the switch on and off? Is it just financial circumstances change or he gets scared or there's some other motivation there? Yeah, why does he why does he kind of keep flicking the switch?
0: Well, the first time he flicks the switch is probably the most interesting, I guess. Bonnie, his wife finds cash in a sock drawer, underwear drawer. I'm not sure what door it was, but it was a drawer. She finds cash and she goes to Hanson and she's all worried that it's cash to fund a mistress because that's another part of Hanson's background. And Hanson basically tells her, no, i'm i'm not i'm not seeing anyone this isn't for a mistress i'm just spying for the russians and i'm making light of it it wasn't quite like that but but sort of like that and so bonnie being devout catholic says all right let's go to our priest they go to the priest and the priest says again I'm, i'm synthesizing here says uh that's bad you shouldn't be spying for the russians but if you give the money to back to the church that you got from the Russians, I'll absolve you. So, I mean, that's just incredible to me that the whole thing could have been stopped right there and then, but it wasn't. Hansen gave the money to the church and he did stop for a while. And then he started back up again. And I don't know that Bonnie ever really knew, or maybe she turned a blind eye after that, as many spouses do, to, you know, their spouse's behavior. She, maybe she didn't want to know. But from there on, he pretty much it was a it was a pretty relatively non bumpy course. I mean he stopped and started a few times because things changed in Russia. But he after that initial bump where the priest gave him absolution, maybe he felt more empowered at that point. If this priest is even gonna let me go, untouchable. And Bonnie's gonna let me go, I'm untouchable.
2: I find that part of the story really fascinating. That it's almost like the modern day papal indulgences which led to the Reformation. If you hand over X amount of money, you don't have to worry about this sin. And it seems to me that's almost like a modern form of that.
0: Yes. I, I'm not a Catholic, so I I don't know all the ins and outs, but and I know there's a confessional, you know, aspect to you can't turn over information that's given in confession, but I'm not sure this was a confession. This was just a, a talk with the priest because Bonnie was concerned about it. And for him just to say, just turn over the money that you made and stop it and not follow up, another misstep, along with many missteps. But this one's not on the FBI and this one's on that priest, I think.
2: And tell us a little bit more about that religious belief. So it seems to me that he's on the one hand he's saying that he's going to protect and defend the constitution and right. fulfill his oaths and so forth but he's he doesn't do that and then on an analogous to that on the one hand he says that he's a law abiding member of the church as a paragon of the community and so forth but but he's not. So I just wonder, is that religious belief genuine and does he still have it just now? Does he still hold it? Or do you think it was just another thing like the FBI that he pulled on top of himself to try to deal with these underlying psychological issues? I think the latter because
0: he converted to Catholicism when he married Bonnie. And I think he used it. I think he used it, like he used the Russians, like he used the FBI for his betterment because being a devout Catholic, Opus Day even, went going to mass every day, having these five children, and this wife that was a devout Catholic as well, gave him a veneer, right? Gave him a persona that he gave to the rest of the world. I hate the communists, they're godless people, I'm I'm God fearing. Gave that persona to the FBI, made him even more trustworthy, I would think. A little strange, a little weird, but trustworthy. I mean, a good Catholic boy, waits the commies as he calls them. He would never do anything. No fingers were ever pointed to him until the very end. And so I think that religiosity cloaked him for the FBI. Whether he still believes or not, anybody's guess. Maybe he's, like I said, maybe he's hanging out with the Unabomber and they're both praying together. (laughs) I I don't know. But he he certainly wasn't very uh, Christian in what he did.
2: Give us a sense of the arc of his career. He starts off in New York and he's relatively junior, but then when, the, when he gets uh, arrested in Foxton Park, he's at a much different position. So just give us a, a brief overview of the, the types of things that he's concerned with, the types of positions that he has and the upward narrative arc of his career, although by no means is he a high flyer, but he does get right. promoted, right? He does get promoted. I mean, he starts as a line agent like
0: everybody else. And he's going to DC. And then when he moves to Washington, to, I'm sorry, to New York, when he moves to Washington, he's at a very high level in the counter espionage division focused on Russia. He is not well liked, but because he's so good at computers and computerization, they let him do his thing and is trusted. And he gets, he really ascends. Now, he's never going to be to a top level at the FBI because people didn't like him. There was an incident with the secretary where he was, it's a, he said, she said, there was a potential assault. So when that happened, that was such a black mark on his career that he would never reach, you know, the highest level like the director or anything like that. But he was high enough up. And in that department, that, that espionage department, where he knew everything and having access to the computers gave him full carte blanche to all the information in all of the different departments. And many of the departments had to report to him. I mean, Hanson was a boss.
2: I find it really fascinating the role that computers play and the ability of spies to exfiltrate information. Like back in the day, you would have to maybe transcribe a copy by hand. And then with someone like Daniel Ellsberg, you have the ability to take photocopies and so forth, But now, or, or photographs. But now with a computer i mean you can get extraordinary quantities of information and if you're if you're the person that sits at the crossroads of all of that information even if you're not at the top of the hierarchy if you're someone that that information comes across your desk then it, it empowers you to just do much more damage. And I know, And you discuss that in the book, especially towards the end. So just talk to us a little bit more about that, about his ability to get information out and over to the, the Soviets and then the Russians.
0: Well, it was actually fairly low tech. He didn't have to handwrite anything, but he would get his information off the computer and then he would copy it on a Xerox machine, basically outside his office, and put stuff in his briefcase to take home. So that today, spies wouldn't have to do that, right? They can just put all the information from a computer onto a thumb drive or load it to the cloud and walk out and no one's the wiser. But back in the Hansen era, he walked out of the FBI with briefcases of top secret information that he just copied on the on the Xerox machine. So computers played a part in that it gave them access, but it was fairly low tech in the sense of what he just was actually able to carry on out
1: of
2: the FBI headquarters. Yeah, I find that one interesting depending on the specific time period, right? Because now, yeah, on a USB stick you can get just tens of thousands of documents. But at that time, the ability to take the information away is constrained, but the ability to get the information is, is accelerated because before you read about these intelligence officers during the Cold War and whenever you would try to go to the archives to look at other stuff that was going on, or whenever you try to stick your nose into something else, you immediately aroused everybody's suspicions. But if you're just sitting at a computer in an office, you can rummage around in a whole variety of places without arousing suspicion.
0: Yeah, no, I'll give you an example too. He, at one point, hacked into one of his colleagues' computers to get more information. He was found out. And he said, his excuse was, I was just trying to show you how easily we're hacked into, and so that we can make sure that we don't. And they believed him. They believed him because he was the computer guy. So kind of like, okay, that's weird. Hanson's kind of a weird guy. Um, that's kind of a weird thing to do. But that's Hanson, and he's our computer guy, and he wants to show us how smart he is. So okay. I mean, I call them puffs of smoke in the book where things could have happened you know differently for him he could have been caught sooner and that certainly was one of them but they just believed him when he hacked in this other person's computer
2: and I'd like to talk about some of the other dramatis personae in this case Uh, and uh, there's just some fascinating figures so Cherkashin, his handler uh, Yurchenko who's just such an interesting defector and then redefector Brian Kelly, who his career is, is destroyed in large part. There's all of these interesting people, so we can't discuss them all, but maybe just discuss a couple that you think are particularly important for this story.
0: Well, Brian Kelly, I mean, we've got to talk about him because I I talked to his widow. I mean, he's no longer with us, Patricia McCarthy. And Patricia said what happened to him basically killed him. Here was this upstanding family man, CIA agent for many years, did nothing wrong except be a very good CIA agent, which when they put the matrix together of who possibly had the knowledge of all these operations and could be the mole, they fingered Brian Kelly and they did it in a very public way. So the whole world knew that this guy was potentially a spy. They were brutal to his family, You know, got his son and his daughter and just really grilled them. And even after the FBI knew that Brian Kelly wasn't the guy and they were setting up a sting to get Hanson, they didn't let Brian Kelly know this because they thought if they let him know, that would mean the whole world would know and it would take the heat off of him. And that's not what they wanted. They wanted Hanson to think that Brian Ke- they caught Brian Kelly, Brian Kelly was going to go down for this. And so the guy just languished and he was eventually exonerated when Hanson was arrested, but it ruined his life. And, you know, speaking to his, his, his widow, it just, it's awful. Also, I wanted to just on a note on that a lot of the research I did was through interviews, but some of it too was going to your museum and looking up old footage interviews that you've done in the past. And one of them was of Mike Rochford who Ran the investigation. And Patricia, Brian Kelly's wife, widow, was in the audience. And it was a traumatic moment. If you have, if you have, listeners haven't looked at it, they should look it up. It's with uh, Mike Rochford and Patricia McCarthy. And she stands up and she says, I want an apology from the FBI. And Rochford kind of delivers one. You know, he feels bad. He feels bad that he didn't get more of an exoneration. But it's a fascinating video. Uh, you should; It's there it's in your uh, archives, and everyone should watch it.
2: Tell us a little bit more about one of the Russian Russians in the story, so uh, yerchenko or Cherkashin.
0: Cherkashin, his handler, just invited him in. When it, Again, they didn't know it was Hansen. They didn't have a name on him. H- Hansen never gave that to him. I think they were as surprised as anyone else when Hansen was arrested. But the letters that go back and forth between these two are just flowery letters. I mean, Tarkasen is just—you know—you're part of our family. We appreciate you so much. You're so good. You—all know, the stuff that the was crazy, ch- craving Tarkasen was perfect for because he then became that family. He became that enabler. He became that glamorizing, flattering character, and Tarkasen was for Hanson a fabulous handler. And he got a lot of information over the years from Hanson. But what a character. You can't, it's funny because i write a lot of fiction. And if I were to try to write this as fiction, people would say, oh, that's unbelievable. You know, it, I'm glad I've got like 50 pages of footnotes in the book, you know, showing exactly how. This is very <laughs> believable. This did happen. And these are live primary sources that I'm quoting. Um, but you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Trakash was just a super handler, a super
2: Russian handler. One of the other things that I was hoping to discuss was, like with this whole thing, a little bit more on the relationship between the CIA and the FBI. So with Brian Kelly, in this sense that, it, well, it has to be someone in the CIA, it can't be FBI. Were there people in the CIA that were let's just say, irritated when it was found out that it was someone from within the FBI. And how how did that affect that relationship? Were there any bureaucratic or institutional changes? Were there any, okay, we need to put our counterintelligence people together and make them talk a bit more or at the director level or further down? Help us understand the effect that this case had on that relationship.
0: Yes, if, if anything good happened out of this um And as you talked about with 9-11, the CIA and the FBI are famous for not talking to each other. And they really didn't during this investigation. But when it turned out that it wasn't a CIA agent, it wasn't Brian Kelly, it was somebody within the FBI. The FBI had to have that egg on their face. And there have been more spies historically through the CIA than the FBI. But now it was one of their own. And the FBI was conducting this investigation. And they, of course, had to bring the CIA into it, which they did. And I think after that, post-Hanson, that the relationship is better because they've learned that lesson that they do have to communicate. Nine Eleven, of course, taught them as well, that they do have to communicate better. So I think if there's a silver lining in this is that the FBI and the CIA are communicating in a better, friendlier way and that there are more stopgats. Now, when you are an FBI agent, you are supposed to go through mandatory rechecks, you know, and financial disclosures that have to be updated, random polygraphs that that wasn't going on during Hanson. Now it is. Even when I was a federal prosecutor, I knew when I walked in, for example, they could take a urinalysis test anytime they wanted. They could polygraph me anytime they wanted. Those are good things. You do lose some of your freedoms when you're in those positions and you sign up for that. And if that had happened during the Hansen era, maybe they would have caught him sooner.
2: And let's uh, close the net in on Hanson. So tell tell our listeners, one of the things I love about our podcast is it ranges from the person that maybe worked this case through to the average person on the street that loves a good spy story. So help us just understand how the net closes in on Hanson, how this all comes to a head in Foxtone Park. Right.
0: So Mike Rochford, the guy that I mentioned before that's on that video, is head of this, spying or trying to catch them all and they really think it's it's brian kelly but then rochford develops another source and this source says i i have a fingerprint and i actually have a tape of the voice of this guy speaking with the russians and i've kept it for myself for my own protection because i may get you know slammed by the russians at any point so rochford makes a deal with this guy brings him over to the u.s rochford confirms it was a seven million dollar payment i mean a lot of money more money than Rock, than that hansen ever got brings him over and they listen to this tape and for a while it takes them a, a little bit of time because they're not thinking that it could be hansen hansen was never in the matrix of people they were looking at but they listen to it and they realize that's robert hansen so now they know they've got the wrong guy kelly and they've got the right guy Hanson. But they don't have enough, should they arrest him just right there, to go to court with that. Because what would they do? Put on this Russian spy who got paid $7 million? I mean, very shady character, if that's your main witness. So they set up a sting operation for him. And it was was very tense, because Hanson was facing mandatory retirement in four months. So they had to work quickly. They set up a fake office, they set up a fake position for him, they gave him fake information. And finally... He delivers that information at Foxtone Park
2: per an agreement with the Russians.
0: And the FBI, when he makes that delivery, are right there.
2: And and what was the reaction amongst the people that you interviewed about? About when it was found out who it was because we had on, a, on our podcast we had Frank Figluzzi on last year, former assistant director for counterintelligence, and he was saying that when he found out it was Hansen, he had worked for him once upon a time. He said that when he found out it was Hansen it was like a punch in the stomach yeah, but not because exactly. of the sh- but not because but not because of the shock, but because it made sense When in retrospect, when you look at all
0: those puffs of smoke as Rochford calls them, the hacking. The fact that his brother-in-law tried, who was also in the FBI, tried to turn him in. The fact that he was talking to Bonnie about retiring in Russia, to retiring in Poland, which made no sense. We were in the Cold War. All of those things. It was, of course, a punch in the stomach because how stupid could we be, basically? And it was one of theirs. But Rochford, to his credit, goes forward and, with the sting operation, doesn't tell Kelly because they don't want to let him know that they know and alert Hansen that way, and sets up a beautiful sting operation. I mean, it went so smoothly. There are little kind of funny
2: glitches in there that I mentioned in the book, but it went beautifully.
0: And they caught him. So it ended well for the FBI.
2: And what do we know about Hansen's post-arrest life in uh, Florence, Supermax prison in Colorado. You know, what do we know? How many times has he spoken? Has he ever spoken to anybody? Did you try to reach him? I mean, I know the answers to some of these questions, but some of our our listeners might not. So just uh, fill them in.
0: Sure. Per the plea agreement that he made with the government, he can't speak to anybody about this. I tried to reach Bonnie, but the same thing with Bonnie for her plea agreement with the government. They can never speak to anyone about this, especially a journalist who's writing a book. So I don't I don't know. I do know that it, he's in 23 hours solitary confinement, so he only has one hour out. And again, he's in with people like El Chapo and the Unabomber. So I don't know if they cohort in the one hour they have a day. He doesn't have visitors other than Bonnie. And it must be a very uh, sad life, but Okay, it's
2: better, I guess, than in his estimation, than getting executed. And his kids and wife, I mean, we don't need to go too much into this, but what's the one of the things whenever I look at these cases is the just the terrible damage that's wreaked on the people that are in the immediate vicinity of them. So just tell listeners a little bit more about that. Well, the five children are
0: all grown up, and I think they're actually doing fine. One is an associate professor, and you know, they seem to be doing fine. I'm sure they're happy to change their names. And they, again, they won't speak to anybody about this. And Bonnie Hansen still works at the same school that she's always worked, didn't divorce him, and has carried on in her life. Jack Koschauer still considers himself his best friend. And Brian Kelly is dead. So that's just some of the collateral damage that happened. And Hanson didn't give a whit about the people around him, really.
2: The Hanson case, what lessons were taken from that and then applied to the FBI, to its own internal policies? I know there's the Webster Commission and there's other right. things. So just let our listeners know a little bit more about, well, okay, this happened and what are the lessons that we learned from it?
0: Well, the Webster Commission, as you pointed out, did a, did a thorough search and, and sent U.S. attorneys in and all of that. And they came to the realization, as we've talked about, that The FBI didn't police itself, and that was a fatal flaw. And now they need to do that. So that hence more polygraphs, more security checks, and all of that. But one of the fascinating things that I found in my interviews, and it really started as just a throwaway line. I asked everybody, FBI and CIA both, could there be another Hanson today? And to a person, they said yes. And then I'm prompted by me, many of them followed up with, and there probably already is. Now, you think about that in our current situation with Russia and Ukraine and how desperately we need information about what's going on in Russia. That is, that's chilling to think that with all those safeguards, these people, it's not least we saying it; it's my sources telling me that there probably already is another spy in the FBI.
2: Yeah, it's almost like the exit point of the book. But I was just wondering, do you think that's just inevitable? Because if you take enough human beings and put them together in one institution, there's always going to be someone whose life falls apart or who's managed to get through the system. So I I know that there were things that the FBI done wrong and I'm not trying to get anyone on the hook or off the hook. I'm just thinking about it like almost statistically even if you've got the best most airtight systems and procedures and internal policing and so forth other than surveilling them 24 hours a day there's always going to be someone that is tempted by money or someone that's been through something in their life where they're at a vulnerable point they can be leveraged so I was just wondering to what extent do you think it's just that's just the way it is or were the people that you were speaking to saying that there's still much work that needs to be done and this is making it more likely?
0: Uh, Both. Um, There's still more that could be done. But one agent, I think it was Jack Thompson, said to me, will there be another Hanson? Of course. Will there be another bank robbery? Will there be another fraud case? Will there be another murder? I mean, crime happens and espionage is a crime. (laughs) And he put it like that, I I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) There'll (laughs) always be another mole. But that's the point, really, is that you have to be thinking like that. There will always be another mole, So don't trust everybody around you. Be looking and report it when it happens. There should be a system for reporting it. Dr. Charney had one, he's a psychiatrist, and one interesting thought. He said, you know, once a spy does it once, they're sort of caught. They feel like they're caught. So how about amnesty program? If you do it once, you can turn yourself in and you won't. No damage. You won't be. You know, nothing will happen to you, and you'll be able to get out of it. People make mistakes, so you don't have to keep digging yourself in. It's an interesting thought. I doubt the FBI will ever adopt that, but it's an interesting thought.
2: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good one. That the one could be bite a fr- rule. The one bite rule. You know, for dogs, <laughs> yeah, one free bite. Yeah. One, free, one free spy. <laughs> Turn yourself that in. That could and be all. an <laughs> that could be an interesting future podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and I remember like one of my favourite books, which is part. It's meant to be purely non-fiction, but it kind of becomes fictional at points. Is the book Spy Catcher by the MI5 officer Peter Wright? Right. And in that book, he dis- he discusses the just the toxic effect that this constant drip, drip, drip of spies that are working internally against their own team had on British intelligence during the Cold War. So that leads me on to the next question, which is just what is the legacy of Hanson for the FBI? Is it we had this, this moment, it was a learning moment, it was not something we're proud of, but we're moving forward or was it, is there an atmosphere of mistrust that anybody could be compromised or, yeah, just give us a sense of how it's affected the culture or how it's affected the institutional memory of the FBI.
0: Well, at the time, of course, it was devastating. I mean, devastating to everybody, CIA as well as FBI. CIA was happy it wasn't them, but FBI for sure. And I think that there almost needs to be somewhat of a level of mistrust, as I was saying. You know, you can't just blindly trust people because of Hansen and other spies. And so I think that is there, and I'm not sure that that's a terrible thing. I mean, I, it's not that you're working with an FBI agent and you're looking over your shoulder all the time, but be aware, be an FBI agent, be a detective, and be aware if things seem, don't seem right. And I think Hansen taught the FBI, and it was such a huge black mark. They never want that to happen again. So I think that's good, actually, that there is a heightened level of wariness about agents. And just making sure that those security checks are done and done again, so that you don't let someone pass through. And if somebody hacks into a computer or, or somebody else reports their brother-in-law, you know, you pay attention to it. And I think that, that has changed.
2: Well, it's been really fascinating to speak to you.
0: Thank you, Andrew. This was a lot of fun. And I, I really appreciate what you did. As I say, I relied a lot on interviews, but I also went to your archives and got great, great material.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The Spycast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughan III. See you for next week's show.